today on Geekdemine Powers. So it was always something that was interesting about like, you know, Stanley talking about the world outside their window. And I was like, well, your world is on Park Avenue. So when you're staring out the window, you don't see me. <laughs> I don't, you don't see anyone who looks like me. It's Park Avenue, dude. <laughs> like, bully for you. You are listening to a special double-sized episode of Geek Them in Pals. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hasson and you are listening to a double-sized episode of Geek Them in Pals. Geek Them in Pals is the podcast that creates a huge, giant, world-sized quilt of the geeks around the world. Each person is a story, and together we are one story, one huge geekverse quilt. The geekverse is on the quilt. <laughs> Today's guest is Kwanzaa Osajefo. He is an author and creator of indie comics, in particular the comic book series called Black, in which it turned out that only blacks have superpowers, and that is followed these days with a new series, White, which features the white's reaction to the news. This episode is double-sized because it covers so much it couldn't be contained. I usually try to cap the episodes at 45 minutes, an hour at the most, it just kept uh, having great stuff, and we kept talking about great stuff, and we couldn't stop it. It was uh, fantastic. So, Kwanzaa takes us through his origin story through DC, Marvel, webcomics, which is, which is fascinating enough. And then we get to Black, the comic book, which leads to, I think, one of the deepest discussions in comic books, certainly that I've seen about the nature of power, who has the power, what is power, and so on. This episode will hit you in the gut, while at the same time be very, very philosophical. So, um, enjoy this. Let's listen. Uh, have you really been writing comics since the age of three? I've been reading them since the age of three, and I guess writing them too. But, you know, when you're a three-year-old, it certainly just seems more like fun <laughs> than like work. So. What kind of stuff did you do? Uh, I think one of my first comic books that I ever wrote about was astronomy. Uh, so I wrote this whole comic book about like all of the different planets in the solar system. And they were sort of anthropomorphic, had personalities of their own. My mom really liked it. <laughs> had a great audience of one. Well, I think that's the audience that matters at that age. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, uh, I have a daughter who at age five went to a comic book store, left uh, to comic book kind of drawing uh, uh, workshop, you know, for kids, done mm -hmm. by an actual person who does comics, and she did so well, he was shocked. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, we are here. This is Gig Them in Power. So, the point is two points. Uh, one is we see how uh, geeks follow through the geekiness to, uh, uh, to, have, to be empowered by it, find their own path. Right. So I would like to follow your path. And also at the end, you also find a way to empower others through your art, which is uh, a great thing. So it's two points. So can you tell us a little bit about your origin story? Oh, geez. Um, 
so I think we already went through, I was making and reading comics at three years old. Uh, but I think my real origin story started in my teens. You know, I had been a comic book reader my entire life. And um, one of the things that hadn't stuck out to me until Milestone Comics appeared was that I was absent from comic books as a person of color. You know, there weren't a lot of stories that reflected people who looked like me, who came from the same backgrounds as me or the people that I grew up, you know, knowing like my parents, my cousins, my uncles. And that uh, milestone really had a huge impact on me so much so that I read through all of the like letter pages and indicia and found their phone number <laughs> and called them on the phone and told them that I was the hot new artist and writer that they needed to hire. I think I was like 16 wow. <laughs> years old. And yes. Um, yes. they, yeah, or complete ignorance, oh. <laughs> I'm not sure. And uh, they actually called me in for an interview. So I walk in there with like my sort of handmade portfolio of drawings and, and writings and stuff. And they sat me down with the editor in chief, uh, Dwayne McDuffie, who I was not expecting to be talking to. I mean, 16 year old kid, I thought I'd you know be talking to like an assistant or something like that. But I was, they sat me down with him and I was definitely intimidated but I showed him my stuff and he was very gracious and looked through it and uh, gave it back to me and let me know that I was not quite ready <laughs> to start making comics professionally. But then took the rest of our time to really ask me about why I wanted to be in comics as a profession and how I could make that happen by, you know, uh, several like ways of going to conventions and showing my work to editors, getting an internship at one of the publishers. But he also was very clear about the fact that, you know, Milestone existed as a separate entity from DC because there was a lack of people of color sure. in the industry and in the content. And that really stuck with me. And, you know, he kind of recognized that there was a correlation between people uh, who are working and what they see in the uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. And it would take me a while to actually see that for myself. But um you know, the information that he gave me was still really helpful. So I applied for the internship at Marvel, I think probably in my like junior year um, and got in, but then I also got accepted to study abroad in Japan. So I had to choose between the two. So I applied again and I got in to the internship in my senior year and like they hired me right out of college. And that's kind of how I got my professional career started, like working at Marvel in, in the online department and in, uh, publishing and editorial. It's amazing. I, I don't know if you know this. Back in the 80s, before your time, when I was 16, uh, uh, there was this big, like, giant book by Jim Shooter for people who wanted to get into, to break into comics. It was yeah. huge, like this. And, and it showed you how, he, you know, it explained all the different jobs. And then it said, you know, it gave you, like, if you're uh, an inker, it gave you this. If you're a writer, it gave you this. And uh, uh, a task to do and then to send to Marvel uh, to, uh, to be accepted. Yeah, I remember those books. I, I, I haven't drawn in, in a long time, but, like, I, I used to read all of those books. They're, like, how to draw the Marvel way. There's just, like, all that great information out there. But... You know, it was one of those things where it's like, I think when you're at a certain age, unless you have somebody who you can like see who's doing it, 
you know, tell you it, it still remains really abstract. Yeah. You know, it still seems like unbelievable or like the dream job. And I think it was really helpful for me to actually see the people doing it and be in the space, even if it was for a moment to realize it's like, oh, this is a job. This isn't like, you know, some fabrication in my mind. This is something that people come and do every day, mm-hmm. you know, in all different facets. So I think that was that was the thing that really intrigued me. And then when I finally got to do it myself, I was just overly mm-hmm. eager to understand all of the different parts of it. Um, and I was lucky enough, actually, that I started in online because that also helped like create a real love of technology as it applied to comic books and like how, you know, they could be done in different formats online, whether it's like web comics or like animated or semi-animated. Like it was really something that, you know, opened my eyes again to like the other places that comic books could exist. You know, especially because there's this already this established thing and then there's this unestablished territory as well. So that was like, you know, the new frontier for me. It's just like, oh, this is unclaimed land. So, so <laughs> you can go play explain it. it. Like, how did, how did you see that and how did Marvel see it? Because they're basically doing comics. And, but in the 90s, there began to be like hundreds and maybe thousands of web comics mm-hmm. all around. So. I think the, you know, the print publishers have always been somewhere around like 10 to 20 years behind like technology trends, even now. They're, they're, they still they still tend to move very slowly and they're never really at the forefront of those things. They're always kind of like catching on. And I think it's sort of like, you know, part of it could be assumed to be, you know, waiting for a market to stabilize or to become sure that, it, you know, it, it's, it's there. And part of it's just like ignorance and not willing to be, you know, brave in those spaces. But I think for a lot of, you know, independent writers and creators, like that's just like the secret sauce of telling any sort of story. It's like, it's a challenge. And I think with major publishers, challenges aren't really their thing. (laughs) They're they're very much just like, this is, this is what we do. This is what we produce. And if something changes, it has to be a monumental enough shift for us to pursue it. And I think you see that, you know, today with like, like DC uh, publishing stuff soon on Webtoon, you know, and it's like, well, Webtoon's been around for like a decade now and you're just getting around to that. It's kind of like, okay. Um, That that sort of thing has always been kind of like, I think the standard, you know, it's like let other people test it out and then we'll come in later and put Batman in it. Listen, just, just a few years ago, one of the biggest science fiction magazines agree to accept email submissions just a few years ago that's, that's not surprising science fiction that's not surprising at all at all i think it's it's one of those things where you know people are very uh they get very steeped in tradition and method and it's hard to break out of that whereas i felt like like starting my career in online was really good because even though i was learning traditional publishing it's sort of like when you think about any term, any type of art, like all or many artists learn the fundamentals. They have to, they go to school, they learn about like different sorts of mediums. They learn about different sorts of techniques, but they're learning all of that so that they can define their own style and language and break those rules. Like that's the whole point. You learn all the rules so that you can break them. Same thing with architecture, same thing with everything, science. You know, you learn the basis of science so that you can, you can push boundaries and, and, 
and see what else can be done. And I think that's the one thing about like publishing is always kind of uh, bewildered me is that they don't they'll they'll push those boundaries in terms of story and like and like what writers and artists might do to tell a story, but they won't push those boundaries much further than that. Like in format, they won't push those like boundaries and distribution. I think that's why it it wasn't really a surprise to me, but I think it was a real surprise for the industry when uh, the COVID pandemic began and everything just got, sort of shut down, you know, for them. Like we were talking about logistics chains. This wasn't like simply like, oh, everybody has to stay home. This is like, no, the, the, the plants that print the paper, the trucks that deliver the comics, the anchor, <laughs> the printers, like all of that shut down and that's their whole business. So to have something like that suddenly shut down, you know, was an interesting thing because the webtoon kept chugging along. <laughs> you know, it's like... It, I actually don't know that. what they did. What did they do as a response? Um, I think there was just like a really long hiatus until everybody sort of got their bearing, you know, and things kind, kind of got back to, you know, normal in terms of being able to, you know, produce things, but it really shifted the dynamic greatly. So you had the two biggest publishers left the, you know, only distributor that used to distribute comics in the United States. You know, I don't, I don't know all of the details of that relationship, but that used to be like, it was Diamond. That's who you went through. And now there's a bunch of different ones out there and they've just completely like shifted. I think, you know, a lot of people who are independent have moved over to Simon & Schuster. I know that's who distributes my book, Black, now. Um, but it's been like a huge change and that's been, you know, it, it took something monumental again, like that mm-hmm. <laughs> to sort of progress. And that, and that seems to be like the, the case. There's, there's not a lot of forward thinking of like, oh, well, what else could happen? Like, how do we future-proof what we do? I see. Okay. So, wait, so a big publisher, Marvel, who is slow on the other forms of publishing, took you to do this the stuff it's slow at right yeah so what exactly was your job like what were you supposed to do so when i was there at marvel we were doing um these sort of semi-animated uh webisodes they were kind of like reminiscent of those old marvel cartoons in the 60s where they would just take the comic book panels and slightly animate them mm-hmm. um and we were also able to create this pretty much the first digital comics platform, which was called Marvel.comics. And it was right around when they launched the ultimate ultimate line. And you were able to download uh, comics on your computer. You were able to like collect them and read them. And this was like not web comics, this was like comics and you could read them panel by panel. And that was sort of like the first breakthrough. But that really came from like the passion of the online team and us as being like a bunch of nerds and <laughs> geeks who, wanted to use this technology, like Flash was like a huge thing. And there were just all these capabilities. And we were like, well, we can do this thing. We should do this thing. Uh, it didn't become, you know, like comiXology, you know, sort of platforms until another decade later. But that was something that like we were like pushing forward because we could, you know, and, and, and we saw what it would be today. But that was like back in, let's say 2000. So you have to think about that. It's 20 years plus. Mm-hmm. Computers were slower. Not everyone accepted the internet yet. Yes. Not everyone had an email yet. Yes. Didn't have iPhones yet. Yeah. 
but we still had a lot of web comics that existed back then. Penny Arcade, um, PVP, those were those were popular or starting to gain popularity back then. So it was like in terms of a distribution chain and reaching a new audience, it's you know, I think I think hindsight now is just like, yeah, definitely. But for us, it's just sort of, you know, again, how do you future proof this? How do you think ahead? You know, it's almost like it's it's almost like if you were in the Stone Age and you discovered paper and you're just like, I don't know, guys, this paper thing. <laughs> we don't have to carve on walls anymore and use chisels. I got this paper here. I think Great. one of the Greek philosophers, like more than 2,000 years ago, said this writing thing is no good. It's very dangerous because people will stop using their brains to remember stuff. Because right. it will be written down. Uh, yeah. So So how did your process go once you got in? Like, how did you... What happened then? Well, I think the interesting thing about it is that, you know, I did in in work and in starting in that internship and then working as an online editor, I really sort of got to see the industry sort of at its at its lowest and then on its way back up. So Marvel had just come out of the bankruptcy. Like it was it was pretty it was pretty bleak. Um, but then uh, they brought in like Bill Jimmis and they started doing the ultimate line and Marvel Knights and things just started to like, you know, head on, head, they, they started to go on a rapid uh, incline in terms of like getting people energized about the medium again. And it was an interesting thing to see because it really let me look at the work, you know, for what it was rather than for what I wanted it to be. So that sort of rosy colored, like glasses it's like oh my god it's spider-man just kind of disappeared it's like okay here's how this here's how this industry works here's you know what you you know have to do to to make it work but you know i left the industry for a bit after that you know and i started working in other jobs and online content and stuff like that and kind of just learning about the bigger broader world world in terms of like you know the web and social media and all that stuff and it wasn't until probably like six years later that I took the position at DC Comics to launch their first web comics imprint. Hold on, there's, there's a step there that I, I want to go through. Uh, were you disillusioned by how comics are made? I, I don't know if I was disillusioned so much as I, I think it was more disillusioned by print than anything else. Like I saw the possibilities of online and it was just something that I really wanted to pursue. Like I saw what technology could do in terms of allowing people to tell stories, you know, in different ways in the ways that they wanted to versus just the tried and true method. And there was just something about that that, you know, sort of left left me with the notion that like it wasn't something that I, they weren't the rules that I wanted to play by, essentially. Yeah. And, and so when I came back to DC, it was under the... Uh, understanding that we were going to do things really different. You know, we were going to try something new. We were actually going to use this technology the way it was intended. And we came up with Zuda, which was, you know, first of its kind in terms of like how DC, you know, brought in new stories and new talent. We would hold monthly contests with 20 completely, or it was 10 completely new concepts. We would let the public decide what they wanted to become a new series. And it would pay these people to, you know, tell their story for like a year. And it was a really great way to like break ground in areas where you didn't have to, you know, have like so much of a gatekeeper, you know, idea that so there's no like editor whose own personal tastes are influencing what goes in and becomes like the next thing. You know, there was no 
uh, tried and true character that you had to like speak to. Like you weren't writing Superman or Batman, so you didn't have to worry about anything. You were coming up with your own idea and your own story and your own narrative. And we did some pretty brilliant work. Like, you know, Bayou was one of our immediate hits, you know, and it was a, a really interesting, like sort of children's horror story about this young woman who went into uh, uh, antebellum Southern world during like slavery to save her father from being hanged, you know? So she had to go into this like mystical world, like, you know, find a way for him to be saved and it's just one of those things that like you know if you had brought it into like a traditional publishing room it wouldn't have gone anywhere you know but because you allowed people to see it to like kind of get a kernel of it first you know people really jumped on the idea and, and loved it and high moon which is about a werewolf cowboy you know who's a pinkerton back in the wild west i don't think there are a lot of western comics like back in you know the early 2000s that had kind of gone out of fashion so it was cool to bring that back and mix it with like horror and then we had another strip called um oh, why am i forgetting the name of it but it was you know set in the roaring 1920s and was just like a really fun campy comic strip you know like in the realm of like uh the peanuts, you know, or like, <laughs> you know, so we were able to do all these different things that, in DC, which is just known for superheroes. And that was really cool, you know, and we were able to do it in this format where we didn't have to worry about, you know, about how many issues are we going to sell? You know, we were like, oh, how many people are reading it? And we could see that number. We had data to support it, you know, and we could see when they were really engaged in a certain part of his story versus when they weren't and be able to like look at that and say like hey people really liked it when this character showed up or people really you know got interested at this part of the story and stuff like that so that it could in some respect inform how people would tell the next chapter which is kind of cool you know again technology doing something that you can't really get from something in print because it was probably made like six months ago. <laughs> so you don't know until like it's on sale. And then like, how, how's that information going to help you now? You're already like six issues, and, you know, a bunch of scripts down. So it was something that like really spoke to me. And, and, I, and I was really proud of like what we were able to do. And we ended up becoming like the second most traffic site after DC Comics itself. So wow. it was like DC was here, Zuda was right here. And then it was like, you know, Vertigo and Manx and all the other stuff. Like, and I mean, part of it's because they didn't have content on the site. They were just sort of like brand branded sites. But, you know, the idea that if you told stories online, you could just attract all of these eyeballs that you would normally have to like, you know, solicit in some respect, you know, market to was really eye-opening for me. I know games do it, like online games, apps and all that. But is it yeah. still done in comics when... Does comicsology do it? Does it track the way you read? Does, does Marvel? Um, oh yeah, there's, there's data behind that, but I don't really know how they, you know, sort of cut it up. And when you look at things like comicsology, comicsology was essentially built just to digitize publishing. There's not like a huge difference there. So it's still operating off of a print publishing model. So the same, it has the same problem that I just talked about. Like, yeah, some might go on Comixology and you have, have data behind it, but you've got, you know, a bunch of stuff that's already in the can. So that data is not really going to inform anything until like months and months and months later. So. Yeah. That'd be useful in AI. When AI gets here. Hmm. That's when AI start writing comic books, that's going to be an immediate kind of thing. 
I mean, I've already seen it doing stuff for like copywriting. I've seen it like make some really creepy art. So I, 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 it's one of those weird things that when it comes to like, you know, robotics, like I am, I'm, I'm an anti, anti-robotics person, <laughs> like in terms of like making them human or intelligent or giving them appendages. And it's like, you know, there, there's certain aspects of it where it's just like, what, why would we need someone to do that? You know, it's like, why would you need a robot to make art? Why would you need a robot to imagine and make stories? Like, that seems like something where if you if you if you're doing what what they what they're intended to do, which is like to compute and understand like high level mathematical engineering problems, it's like let's stay in that lane. <laughs> I would like you to build more efficient buildings. I would like you to build like more efficient transport, farming, agriculture, all that stuff. Art? No, not so much. <laughs> I, I do think I do think it's coming. Like if you can oh, definitely. If you can get like an AI to write a book in two days, that's a bestseller, then you can get them that AI to do that 12 times a year or 200 times a year because it's worth money. Uh, yeah. Movie uh, or, you know, uh, all that stuff. But I, I, I've given this a lot of thought as to why who thinks um, about the future and about being replaced by machines. Um, You know, the, the, the thing about AI is today, the way it's being built, is, at least in this, is that it, it works to, to having an approximation as close as possible to what we do. It can't actually surpass us. This type of specific AI, it's not an intelligence AI, it's, an, uh, it's a mimicking AI. So it can create something new that's very similar to what we do. So every time you do something new, it can copy you, but it can do something new for you. So right. eventually for writers, I think it'll be kind of a Photoshop thing. You mm. tell it to, to do a thing and then it does it faster than you and then you tweak it and you change it and it's not the same, but it's also not you being replaced. Yeah, I mean, like I've played with some, with some copywriting AI and, and, it, and it, can, it can do some stuff. Yeah. You know, but at the end of the day, like, yeah, it always has to operate off of something that you give it. It's not like you could press, press a button and say like, hey, do the thing. Like it needs a prompt, which I suppose is good. But at the same time, it's just like one of those territories where I'm just like, hey, we, we've got bigger problems than you trying to write a book. Like that's what we're using this for. <laughs> it's like, can we get some AI to figure out how to clean up the ocean or something? Like, that seems like much more useful than like writing, writing a comic book story. Yeah. So, okay. So back to the story. You're in DC. You had, uh, you had this. Then... Yeah. So, you know, it was really something that, you know, I was really proud of. And, you know, we had amazing contracts for all of the creators. We had started putting the books in print at one point. But, you know, it was around then that I kind of realized that, like, it was, again, the system not really understanding, you know, the, the possibilities of what we were doing. Because technically those books had a larger readership than some of the top selling stuff at the company at the time, just in terms of like reading numbers. Now, granted it was free. So, I mean, you can't really, it, it's, it's definitely apples to oranges, but that's the point. It's like, okay, well then if these are, if these are apples and we're making oranges, then we need to create a new criteria for oranges and how that's supposed to operate. But everything was always sort of like compared to apples. And I think that's always been like the biggest thing that is like, 
held back a lot of publishers is not really like looking at you know what the, the the what they're measuring against so it's like if you're going to make comics for you know 12 year olds then you can't use the same measurements that you do for adults you know if you're going to make them for kids it's a completely different thing it's a completely different process there's a different everything about it and the same thing goes for like digital and online it's like this isn't going to go you, you can't you can't you can't expect it to fit inside this box that you already have you're going to just have to make a new box and fill it with new things and new thoughts you know but um it, it was one of those things where you know, we got to a point where i think they very much just felt they wanted to keep things in in that box and Zudo just became another one of their imprints that they created and went away. I used to sit outside of the hallway where my office was in New York, and it was literally a row of all of the previous imprints that had existed before at DC, before at Zuda. And I was just like, ah, yeah, those are all gone. I don't know if this is <laughs> foreboding or what, but you know, it, it, it was. And I mean, it, it got to the extent that like even recently they, you know, um, got rid of Vertigo. So everything's just DC now, which makes sense in some regard because as a publisher, they should be able to use that brand to tell all different types of stories. But again, it was sort of a understand what you're trying to do and then do it with the same vigor that you do superheroes as opposed to, you know, oh, we're, we're, we're making Vertigo books, but they have to have the same standard as Batman. It's like, well, they're never going to. Like they're different books they're going after different audiences and maybe that audience is smaller or maybe it's bigger and you just don't know how to reach them you know and that's something that you should consider changing it's like how do we go after like more people like this like how big is that market um if there was one thing that i i i thought was pretty interesting considering some of the other work i've done outside of comics is just how much the comics industry does not operate off of any data like real data yeah yeah <laughs> they kind of have like comic-con sales and that's about it you know there's no there's not really a demographic that they understand like there's there's the same sort of standard you know numbers like oh here's their age range here's their gender and that's kind of it you know but there's no real measurement of like you know who this audience is what they're really into it's just like we make superheroes if you like that read this Otherwise, we're just kind of, we're just throwing things on the wall, you know? But this, I think this brings us back to, to the thing you raised before. When people realized that they need a greater diversity of creators to have a greater diversity of uh, characters, how did that process go? Because I remember the 80s. I'm pretty sure I wasn't doing mm -hmm. the comic books, but... I'm pretty sure that people were really afraid to have black heroes because no one would accept it. You know, that was kind of the thing. That was uh, why the uh, JMS, J, uh, the guy who wrote Babylon 5 also wrote in the 80s, He-Man and... Uh, yeah. Was it the real Ghostbusters? And in his, in his autobiography, he talks about, you know, when he wrote uh, a powerful black person, a powerful woman, and... And people came to him and said, you know, the audience will not accept this kind of thing. We need to change them to do that. And he said, okay, bring me the data that says this. He said, and they couldn't bring in the data that said this. And, but they insisted right. that he was right. And the network insisted they were right. And they kicked him off the show. Yeah. Box. 
<laughs> it's the box. Um, so I think a lot of the diversity that's that we've seen is you know, it's been very recent. You know, as recent as when I launched a Kickstarter for my book Black. You know, it was something that was born out of the fact that I had worked in the industry and seen what you know Mr. McDuffie had sort of warned me about, which is that you know there's a lack of people of color working in the comic industry, and so that impacted what was in the content and in the comics. And it wasn't something that was, you know, uh, Machiavellian or like, you know, like purposefully ill intent, but it is a very good case study for what systemic racism is. And I think when people hear systemic racism, they still, especially in America, think of it only in terms of violent racism. Like people hear racism and they always just think like guys on white hoods, burning things, hanging people, killing people. It's like, no, it's if something's systemic and something's built into the laws, into the fabrics of like who has access and stuff like that, that's something that's a lot more subtle and a lot more normalized. So what I, you know, realized in working in comics, I was like, wow, there's no, there's not a lot of black people here. In fact, like I was the only black editor at DC when I was there. And it was something that was very jarring to me. Like there was like two assistant editors, but I was the only full editor. And I was just like, how, how is this possible? It's 2000, <laughs> I, think, I think it was like 2006 when I was doing that. And, you know, that really stuck with me because, you know, I had been, you know, six years prior at Marvel and it was the same thing. It's like, there's been, there's been no progress here. So when I left DC, you know, I was really thinking about, you know, the story of Black, which I had come up with ages ago. And I considered you know, like pitching to like a DC or a Marvel, but I knew that they wouldn't go for it. You know, I just knew that, that. Like I knew that systemically this would not be received because they didn't see the world the same way that I did. You know, so it was always something that was interesting about like, you know, Stanley talking about the world outside their window. And I was like, well, your world is on Park Avenue. So when you're staring out the window, you don't see me. <laughs> you don't see anyone who looks like me it's park avenue dude <laughs> like bully for you so with black i really wanted to tell a story that reflected like you know the experience of african americans in some regard and you know part of that at the time was you know and still is but you know is a police violence you know is something that's very real and very constant and has been you know for our entire history in the United States because it's part of that system. You know, it, it's a system, it's a system, it's, yeah, it's a systematic form of racism. And when I thought about the idea originally, uh, a man by the name of Amadou Diallo had been shot 40 times by the police. They thought he had a gun, it was his wallet. And when I launched Black the Kickstarter, that was in, I think, 2016. So here we are 10 years now later. Still not a lot of people of color working in the comics industry and I launched this. And, you know, everybody thought it was really timely because I think at that time, um, Eric Garner had just been killed. And I was just like, okay, so this is not timely, everyone. This has been happening to black people in America since forever. I'm telling a story that you think is new and fresh, but is like my cousin's story, <laughs> it's like my aunt's story. Like this is, this is a collective narrative that we don't want to be part of our story, but it's very real. And you just haven't seen it exist in comics before. And so that was very important for me to have as a catalyst in this story, but then to also expound upon, you know, all other aspects that I could get into 
uh, black in terms of like dialect, in terms of like characters, in terms of politics, and just really try and show the breadth and depth of African-American cultures within a comic book, you know, and still have it be like fun superhero stuff, you know? So, you know, starting with that pivotal moment where the protagonist is shot and killed by police, but then comes back to life and finds out that he has all these superpowers was something that I thought was really unique to not only comics, but also to really diving into like a, a story that's steeped in what you see outside your window if you're not on Park Avenue. And that felt, and I felt like that was very important and something that I needed to sort of carry on from like Milestone and what Dwayne McDuffie had been doing. Yeah, I think uh, when I have the concept, I don't, I don't know if you mentioned the concept, the concept is uh, only Blacks have superpowers, not all. Yes. Blacks have super, but only Blacks have super, what if only Blacks had superpowers? What would happen then? And yeah. I got this concept before I started reading it, like, this is the concept of the book, okay. And I, um, I really did imagine. I, um, I imagined you would go like all in on, uh, and you went all in on many things I didn't think about, but uh, on the hurt uh, and uh, the, the basically the open wounds uh, that are there. So then you can give the, the then we can have power. And what happens then? Right. Um, like I think the most uh, powerful scene is when they're going to burn a guy, and yeah. then he gets powers, and you build the scene where he is about to be burned and then gets burned in such a powerful um, uh, uh, that award, um, violent way that when he gets his power and tries to burn them, uh, you feel like, first of all, you feel really angry at what's been happening. And you know, of course, it represents stuff that's been going on. You feel so angry that you want him to do it. He feels yeah. justified in doing it. Just uh, and um, I think uh, that is that is awesome. I I I also thought you would go. Maybe it's it's kind of maybe it's not, but I also thought you would say, okay, so now let's see how white people react to the fact that blacks have superpowers, uh, which we didn't get to in uh, in black, um, and like because. I found from, you know, you look at history and you look at stuff around you and stuff that's completely unacceptable and no one would ever get it. And then suddenly it happens and, oh, okay. Stuff that gets people to be violent, you know, no, 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 we, it's good for us to be the kings. We will go out to the street and fight for this, uh, for, against these people who are trying to get justice for themselves. And, uh, and then suddenly, oh, okay. Suddenly, things are changed and uh, so it's, you accept it when you thought people wouldn't accept it. And mm -hmm. if, if only blacks had superpowers, the white people would have to accept it. Like there's no way not to accept it. Uh, I'm waiting on white. I, I just found out the first two copies of white. So I'm, 
I, I just started reading it. Um, right. Yeah, because I mean, that is sort of the natural progression for something like that. And I didn't want that to be the main focus of the first book. I wanted it to really be, I wanted it to really hang on that premise of what if only black people had superpowers, which, you know, is an interesting concept of itself because the minute you say it, people have a reaction to it and they don't, some people don't know how to articulate their reaction to it. And that's what I thought was kind of an interesting thing to explore in the story because I didn't feel like I had to dive into anything that I didn't want to or, or provide any sort of like, you know, teachable narrative or something like that. I felt like I just very much had to like be true to like the characters and how they were going to progress through the story and the choices that they were going to make because the reader was going to come in with their own impressions either way. So there's, you know, people who read that same scene that you talk about and they think that it's unrealistic. You know, like nobody would do that. Nobody does that anymore. But I actually based that scene off of something that actually happened. Sure. I actually pull a lot of the violence that happens to characters from the news. I find news stories of things that happen to people and black people. And I just put them in the story. So when people say things are unbelievable, I'm like, well, but it happened. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm not going to tell you, go find it in the news. Like I, I literally drew this out of the news. So that's a little bit of my secret sauce <laughs> is that I don't like make up so, like certain acts in the story. Like, yeah, nobody can shoot ice out of their hands, but they can, <laughs> police can still shoot them. This, this actually happened. And I think, you know, in, in providing a story like that, you, you get a lot of people who it's, it's almost as though they're acknowledging the racism that exists by being upset about the book existing. And that's the thing that they can't contend with. That's the thing that they can't like wrap their, their brains around. Some people, when they get upset about the like, idea of it, because it's like, well, if racism didn't exist, then you wouldn't be upset by this concept at all. And it would be meaningless. It would be like, you'd be like, I don't know, I don't get it. But when you hear the concept, people immediately get it. And it's like, because you understand that racism does exist. Like, that's it. <laughs> that's literally it. There's also the thing where people say, okay, you understood there was racism, but racism is over now because we accept that there was racism. It's done. Um, and I, I do want, like, I want to go through the different stages there. Like, it was a crowd, it was a crowdfunding thing, right? Mm -hmm. So what was the process of getting uh, to be crowdfunded? How did you do that? So again, this is one of those things where it's like, it was my love of technology that came into play because again, when I thought about, you know, the book in its, in its initial stages, I was like, well, you know, we're not going to get a publisher that I know of. And, and I knew quite a few. I had yeah. you know, a lot of connections in the industry and I was like, nobody's going to say yes to this. But times had changed, even since, you know, Zuda, when I did that with DC and crowdfunding had become a thing. I was like, oh, wait, this is ingenious. Like, you know, essentially that's what we did with Zuda. We let the people decide if they wanted something to become a series. And that's how it moved forward. And for me, I felt like Kickstarter would be a great litmus test for the idea because, you know, I noodled around with it and stuff. And I was like, I don't know if people like this. Maybe people will think it's stupid. Obama was president. I was like, maybe racism is over. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, I could be wrong about this. Um, but I felt like the best way to find out is to just put it out there and say, like, hey, this is an idea that I have. Here's who I'm working with. Here's some of the art. Here's some of the story. 
if you think it's worth anything, you know, here, here, here's how you can support it. And, you know, we, we put it online, I think, February of 2015, um, on uh, February 1st, I think by February 3rd, we had hit our goal of $30,000 in like three wow. days, which was really wild because I, I thought we would be struggling and like, you know, campaigning and trying to get people to back us. It's like, hey, here's, here's my idea. And it just took off. You know, we got a write up in, uh, I think it was like the New York Times. Uh, wow. So many, so many news outlets. I was doing interviews like that first week, like crazy. We had like a movie offer that first week. I didn't even have like a lawyer. <laughs> I was just a guy who made a comment with my friends. And next thing you know, it's like, I've got to figure out how to deal with like Hollywood. Um, so it was really crazy. And by the time we ended the Kickstarter at the end of the month, we had made like $92,000 was our whole amount. So you know, it was definitely something that, you know, spoke to people and that felt good, you know, to think that we could come up with an idea and that it would resonate, you know, so much with people that, you know, a tagline was kind of all we needed. You know, once people heard that, they're like, oh, yeah, that's that's new. That's neat. I think it stands in, on an exact, the tagline itself, the concept, on a tectonic fault. You just, you realize that you're either here or there. You know, what mm-hmm. would this be? It's kind of a binary thing. Yeah. And, and it's so easy for people to try and imagine. It's not easy for them to write the thing, but to try and imagine what it would mean. Yeah. Uh, some people feel powerful. Some people would feel powerless. Uh, right. And some people would be happy for it. Some people would be extremely crazy because of it. And some people uh, angry. And, and some people would be happy because other people are angry and the other way around. Yeah. Um, and some people, I think what a lot of people struggled with who, who were a little bit more, who read the story and or tried to understand it was like understanding what actual power is, you know? Because it's like having superpowers might not change anything for you it might make things worse for you maybe it makes things better who knows you know it's like i think i think especially in the comic book genre there's this idea that like you have powers and then all of a sudden you have a fortress of solitude all to yourself <laughs> you know or you you have you know uh wayne corp you know or mm-hmm. the mascara it's like no that doesn't just come with that those people already had stuff you know they already had like wealth they already had inheritance and stuff You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're princesses and super scientists and, you know, billionaires. It's like, but, you know, if you get powers and you didn't have anything to begin with, how does that change your station? Does it? You know, if you're, if you're poor and you could fly, you're still poor. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it doesn't really like make much of a difference for like too many things. So I, I like the idea of those constraints. Well, I, I, I'm going to like, I have to... magnify that point if you're poor and you can fly you're still poor um which is true and the thing i've noticed about the book those part of them well the comics uh is um you have people who are oppressed to get powers but in their minds even when if all the if the powers are open revealed they'll be more oppressed than they were before right so it's like you can't be there's no way out of oppression 
in the books, which is a point, I think. Right. Yeah. Because the whole idea of who is oppressed isn't actually based on them having superpowers, it's based on their skin color. That's kind of like the point. It's like, what if only black people had superpowers? Your, your answer in a utopia should be like, so what? But we don't live in one. And it's like, the, the, the black thing is the key here. So that's what kind of shifts things where it's just like, okay, so you have superpowers, but in the world as we understand it, in the context of like our reality, it being only something that black people has, has a whole different meaning than it, you know, when you watch a lot of TV shows or like even like with the X-Men and stuff like that, it's like, well, the X-Men is still rather utopian because those powers are democratically distributed, you know, tall people, small people, short people, pretty people, whatever, you know, that's the, that's the X-Men. But at the same time, most of them are pretty good looking and most of them are white. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, they don't really have to in society worry about certain things where they're going to be seen as other you know so if you take like a classic character like cyclops he wears his red sunglasses and he can walk around wherever he wants nobody's gonna bother him it's like but if you take a black character and do the same thing well powers or no powers there's a good chance that he's gonna you know be confronted with some sort of like racism so you add like powers onto that and now you just got you know, an even bigger target. So yes, for the characters, it's very much like that kind of conundrum of like, okay, I got powers now. What if if the world? I like to out, argue that point. If that, I like to argue that point. If that's okay, because yeah, the reason racism racism exists for anything. Humans are built to to find differences, but the reason we have white black is because when the Europeans came to Africa. They were. They had the superpower. They had guns, mm -hmm. and so and so they said, "Okay, these people are inferior. We are the superior," and, and and so on and so on. And but if that switches, it's kind of a, a South Africa thing, you know. Blacks were oppressed, but blacks were not the minority. They were the majority. So the second you got one one man, one vote. That switch, like in one minute, that switch. Right. Uh, so sometimes the power does shift, and then the racism right. doesn't matter. It's like those things that you know. One but second, in some respect, it does because the system, like in South Africa, is still a lot of like land and property yeah. owned by you know Africans. So it's like there. There's an interesting thing about that because there's a point in the history of slavery where it went beyond just having like guns and it became like, again, that system of power because especially in the South, there were more black people than there were white people in terms of like slaves and slave owners. Mm -hmm. So in some respect, you could say like, yeah, at any time, you could have just like revolted, you know, and some did like in, in yeah. like Haiti and stuff like that and like um, in the States, but it always came down to like the ability of the system to then suppress that you know so there's a thing where it's like people would have thought like oh well you have the power of numbers it's like but how does but you know does that matter you know or like you know during the beginning of the slave trade it's like you have the power of guns like a, a couple of europeans coming into like the, into africa with some guns it's like yeah there's like th there's like three million of us and there's like you know 300 of you guns yeah big deal 
<laughs> it shouldn't mm-hmm. matter. But that's that like difference of like power, like how you maintain those things. And so that's one of the things that I explore in the story because the characters don't have numbers. You know, like the percentage of black people that have powers isn't that large, you know? So it is this sort of like tenuous thing where it's like, if this becomes public knowledge, it doesn't just create a problem for us, but considering how the world like views race, it just becomes a problem for all black people. So it won't matter if you have powers, like the Mm -hmm. world will look at you and be suspect on a whole nother level. They're just like, well, first of all, I suspect you because you're black, but now I'm worried you shoot lasers out of your face (laughs) as well. So it's like this, it's like this extra like layer of pressure. That's interesting. So, so you convinced me. So what is, where does power exist? I really think that power exists in our ability to really swim the terms with each other and try to work towards understanding each other, which, you know, is hard. It's really difficult, you know? And it's really difficult for people to do that on a level where they're willing to be wrong about something. You know, it's an unfortunate human flaw (laughs) for us. And I think it exists for everybody. You know, it just, it may depend on where you sit in the power dynamic, but, you know, there's just the, the idea that, you know, what is like even being like wrong, you know, it's like some people think being wrong is being bad. And it's like, you're not bad because you're wrong. You might just be ignorant. You might be uninformed. You might be deceived by misinformation. That doesn't mean that you're an awful person. That just means like maybe you need to be willing to accept that you don't know everything, you know, or that you can change and still be you, which is another huge thing. You can change and still be yourself. And that's something that people like find hard to accept. So I think a lot of power lies in being able to be open to those flaws, be open to communicating and like understanding that, you know, the, the world isn't as big or as small as you see it sometimes, you know, it's not so big that things can't be solved, but it's not so small that you can't like open your mind to the idea that other people and other experiences exist and that you can have some influence on them in a good or bad way. And it doesn't necessarily make you bad. I, 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 I watch a lot of sci-fi and I was watching some sort of Star Trek episode and they can, they, somebody made an offhand comment about like, you know, whether or not a, or maybe it was a Marvel movie, I'm not sure. But the point was made that like, you know, does an ant see a boot as an oppressor? And I'm like, you know, that, that ties into a level of Buddhism where it's like, does that ant have a right to live? And, but are you a horrible like creature because you may have trampled on them it's like you don't know about if you don't know about their existence or you're not worried I mean, like nobody's going to go and trample on ants on purpose or maybe kids but they don't know anybody you know but it's like nobody does that with the intent of like i really just freaking hate ants so i'm going to go and stomp them all out it's more like oh i was not aware of this so once you do become aware what do you do with that information you know it's like once you do become aware of like how systemic racism works, what do you do with that? You know, are you just gonna like throw your hands in the air and say like, it's something you can't solve or, or, or get defensive because you feel like, you know, you've been made culpable in it and stuff like that. Or are you gonna be open like, okay, well, well, let's talk about it. What is it? How does it work? 
this this is a bad this is a bad and awful thing. So how do we how do we eradicate it? How do we neutralize it? What work can we do? And that might involve some change on your part. And I think a lot of people fear that. You know, that might it that might include admitting some faults, some biases, some actual hate. And I think people recoil at the idea of seeing themselves as a villain where it's like sometimes it's not really that. Sometimes it's just the difference between like you know, knowing that ants were there, which I hate. I'm, I'm maybe I'm not liking this analogy anymore because it puts black people in the position of ants. But I'm just saying that, like, that's how power can work. Sometimes it's like it's very large and seems like unstoppable. But really, it just comes from you taking the time to like look and see, you know, how things work and what you can do to like make them fair. You know, to be more aware. I saw uh, a satirist, like a person-wide satire show the theater shows uh in an interview on tv and what he asks of people is to change their minds he wants people to change their minds in a really really big way like things that they find unacceptable and then the interviewer said you know five years ago you said this in the show and out facts turned out the other way and so obviously you were wrong and the satirist wouldn't admit that he was wrong try to find excuses and went on that. And I was thinking how uh, he's asking people to do the hardest thing, which is to change their minds. And he can't do it himself. Yeah. Because sometimes artists and people who write satire or try to create change, who ask people to change their minds, are the ones who are most often asked to change their minds. Because right. people will come at you from all sides. And sometimes one or two of them will be right. And then it feels unfair as well, because I change my mind all the time and you guys never change your mind. Um, what's, what's the, I understand the, in the philosophical part for a second, and then we'll come back like to, to your personal journey, but what's the opposite side of power? How are people who are not doing what you just said maintaining their power? Well, I think some people, or at least, and, and this goes into the realm of like opinion, because that was one of the things that I wanted to explore in white and what intrigued me about it in terms of not only how would white people react to it, to black people having superpowers, but because I'm not white, like, what is the perspective of power when that's all you've ever known? Like, how do you view it? So believe it or not, I was actually really kind of inspired by Donald Trump Jr., because he's an idiot and he doesn't know it, just like his dad. So it's mm -hmm. like that's generational. Uh, the the thing that's been passed on between those two hasn't just been wealth; it's been pure ignorance, willful ignorance. You know, so it's like, how does a person like that perceive the world? You know, how do they? Is there something that's always in the back of their head that's telling them it's like, I'm a fool, I'm a buffoon? Is is there like an imposter syndrome that's driving it? Is it ego or is it just like again? that you know obliviousness because this is how things have always been i've always been wealthy i've always been white i've always been male i've always been powerful so like when people challenge that like i go on my heels and i don't know how to respond to it i respond like you know like i'm threatened rather than change and so what i as i try to dive into these characters minds and like read and try and like examine and, and observe these sort of people you know what i what i found is that it's really about them not wanting to ever feel as though they don't deserve 
what they've been given, you know, or that they are somehow like they didn't earn it, you know, and, and I hear that argument a lot, you know, especially in America with people in power is like, it's all about like, like people who want to feel like they earned what they got fair and square. So one of the things that has been coming up a lot in, in, in discourse in America is when people talk about uh, redlining, which is basically, you know, systemic discrimination against black people in housing so that we couldn't buy like homes in certain areas, even though there was government finance put in place with the GI bill for veterans to purchase. So with that bill, you know, uh, white male veterans are able to come back and buy a house at like really low prices and low interest. Only three black veterans were able to get into that program. Three <laughs> out of thousands. So that immediately, at least in like how things work in America, completely kept black people out of building wealth because they weren't able to buy homes in neighborhoods where they wouldn't like increase in wealth or they could grow or even like own at all. So they were forced to rent. And when you talk about that to people today who live in those homes that they may have like purchased from people who got it on a GI bill or inherited from their grandfathers or, or, their, or their mothers and fathers, they think that they earn that purely because the system that they operate in, they still had to go to work. They still had to you know go to school, earn a living and stuff like that. And this one thing doesn't feel like a privilege to them because it's everybody that they know is privileged. So they're in this system, the bubble, which is a favorite word of people who like to, you know, have uses rhetoric against like progressives or leftists is the norm for them. But when you go back and like detail that history and say like, okay, this might be the norm for you, but do you know that you have this and the other people who were supposed to get this did not get it? Yeah. It's a perfect example of power, but you people will fight tooth and nail and say like, well, I'm not privileged. You know, I, I have a blue collar job, like, or, uh, you know, I'm not rich or what have you. And it's like, okay, all those things can still be true, but what you weren't was pushed out because of who you are. My grandfather was, so he never was able to give me anything that you were able to get. And it's a small thing. But it's a big enough thing that means that you got to go to a better school. There's like, you know, better like, you know, community and facilities and all that stuff. And people who have that sort of power, because it's not, you know, what they see power as, which is like, I live in a mansion, I'm Jeff Bezos, <laughs> they fight even harder to like push against the idea that they've somehow accumulated something unfairly or without like earning it. And it's like, but you didn't. <laughs> Because you, you really didn't. So, you know, I started off with Donald Trump Jr. as, a, as an extreme example of it, but it, it follows that similar trend of like, you never, you know, you didn't have to work for the things that you got. You got them because of your name or because of your lineage and stuff like that. And you're, you're an easy example of it. But when you take that into the average everyday American, you know, white, white American, it's like, yeah, you got that too. And that's the thing that people will call white privilege. It's like, you didn't, it's not that you didn't earn these things, you didn't maintain them or what have you, but being of color didn't keep them away from you. And that's the big difference, you know? And it's like, yeah. people really struggle with that, with that idea. Like when presented with it, it's just like, it's not a hard concept. <laughs> like it's small inheritance. It's like, my grandparents did not own anything. They could not own anything. Ergo, they could not pass anything on to me. Like normal stuff, you know? Yeah. 
it's, I'm the first person in my generation to own a house. Congratulations. Uh, right. But the, it's like not my mom, not my grandparents, yeah. <laughs> not my great grandparents, never owned anything. Do you, in, in the beginning of that, you said, you know, listen, Trump is really hard to understand, and, and so is his son. Um, but, um, but before that, like you said, you wanted to understand what it's like to have power. Mm -hmm. And what I heard in that, maybe I heard wrong, is that you feel you never felt you had power. I never felt I had power in the context of what power, how power exists in the United States. Like there's certain powers that people can feel in terms of like, well, here, I'll describe something like this. Like as a black person in America, I do not feel like I have absolute power of autonomy to walk wherever I want, to exist in any place in America that I want to. I know that there are certain places where depending on how I'm dressed, definitely depending on the color of my skin, I may be accosted. And it might not be by the police. It might be like by the average citizen, you know, who just doesn't like me based on like how I look. And the idea that like white people in America do not have that factor and don't realize it is something where it's just like, that's a difference in power. Like, I don't have, I don't have that power. And it's very real to me. You know, it's, it's, it was, it's very real to me growing up in New York and knowing that like, okay, if I'm going to wear a hoodie today, I'm going to be regarded very differently than if I wear, you know, my suit and tie and like, you know, hat, but only slightly more so. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's only like a slight advantage. So it, it's, it's that kind of thing where it's like the idea of being able to not think about that is beyond me. It just doesn't exist in my life. So I had to really try to like, you know, when writing some of the uh, antagonists in white, try and wrap my head around like, what is a person who doesn't have to worry about like that feel like? Do they feel nothing? Do they, does it even enter their mind? You know, what sort of callousness could that create in a person or obliviousness? Because for some people it's not even, you know, a, a thing, but like when you look at a, a Donald Trump Jr., he's, he's perfectly aware of his privilege. He, he flaunts yeah. it. He uses it to his advantage. But that makes the average American also intriguing who does that on a different level, you know, and doesn't realize it. And that kind of goes right back to that whole idea of like the premise of this universe. What if only Black people had superpowers? If it bothers you, you're completely aware of these differences. You're completely aware of these inequalities. So yeah. you have to come to terms with what's bothering you about that versus like being mad at me for coming up with the idea. People are mad at you? Oh yeah. I mean, I think for the first uh, the, the first year after the book was out, we didn't really have too many people who were mad, but I think in the following years, you know, as the book um, got more notoriety and more visibility like yeah definitely have people who you know just throw all of the like really tropish jargon at me all the time I mean it, it's almost like to this point I could write what they say about me for them <laughs> this is the same thing it's just so repetitive and like they'll get like a new catchphrase or something and that'll become the new one like my favorite my favorite favorite word is race bait that's my favorite race bait 
race bait because I'm like, okay, so you're saying that this is bait for racism and you took the bait making you a racist. <laughs> like, I don't even, like, how are you insulting me with that word? I don't get it. <laughs> it's like, you're, you're, you're mad at me for revealing something ugly in yourself. Like, or you could deal with that and not be that ugly person. I mean, there's that part, but, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it, it gets to the heart of like why I wanted to like tell the story and like explore this universe because again, I hadn't seen any of this in the comics, comics that I read growing up, except for Milestone. And even they, you know, only touched on it in, you know, so much and in so many ways. I really just wanted to get to the core of the matter and not like, you know, put a veneer over it or try and make it, you know, seem like, you know, utopian or like a lot of people are included. I was like, no, we, we live in societies that are exclusionary. So let's tell a story about that. And let's be true to it, you know, in a way where you don't have to think about like, oh, well, there's these big giant killer robots that hunt down mutants. It's like, yeah, we don't need robots. It's like black people just have the police. Like, there you go. <laughs> They're not fantastical monsters. They're dudes with authority and guns and power who are trained to like look at people who have darker skin as like different or criminal. There you go. Like. Boo, boo, there's your, <laughs> there's your scary story. I mean, it's like, they don't really need to go too far, which is, you know, again, why it's, you know, I, I pull a lot of stuff from like the headlines to like, you know, craft some of these stories around. And have you, like, on the other side of responses, have you had responses uh, from people who were absolutely certain they were not racist and then really felt uncomfortable with that? Um, I've had people who didn't, and, and this is the thing that felt really good about doing work, who, who two things. One, I've had people who, much like myself when I was young, like young black people, say like, I never saw myself in comics before. Like, this is me, like this character is me. And that yeah. felt like so good. Cause that's part of what I was going for. It's like, I. I may have overindulged in that aspect and put way too many characters in the first book, but you know, it was one of those things where it's just like, I wanted to see all the people that I know in these stories and, and have them like have some voice. But there are other people who saw the story and just like realized in that moment, like what a, what a void there is in comic book storytelling and themselves saying like, how, how have I been oblivious to that? Because mm -hmm. once per people heard the idea, they're like, that's so easy to get and it's such an immediate concept. It's like, how, how have I been like so blind to this lack of representation in comics? So I think it was, you know, it was just an interesting time when it initially came out and then like you had the Black Panther movie and like, and then um, get out the, the film. So there was just like this, this steady drumbeat of, of narratives you know, from, from black storytellers that were about black characters that people hadn't seen in certain genres before that really made them have to take a step back and go like, oh, okay, this is what people mean when they say something's systemic. This is what people mean when they say something's like exclusionary. Mm -hmm. It's like, because this is something wonderful that I've never seen before. And I kind of have to ask myself like, why the hell haven't I seen this before? You know, and what is the story telling me about like 
you know, who gets to, you know, tell stories. And I think films like, you know, definitely Get Out did that because it's like, it's like a black horror story that's like very true to like a narrative. My 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 wife asked me, and she's Caucasian, and she asked, she's like, have you ever felt like that with my family? And I was like, oh yeah, definitely. I was like, it's a ridiculous thing to think, but I've thought it. Like I'm a black person who's suddenly in a space where there's like no other black people around. Like like I'm away from like what I know. Hell yeah, I thought scary stuff. It's like you just don't know. It's like so that story just made complete sense to me. You know. It's ridiculous, but it made sense. It's like, yeah. Um, and I think people got it, you know, because it also just touched on that, you know, it, it was different in like how it in how how it told it through the lens of like black experiences, but it was relatable in the sense that it spoke to anybody who's ever met, you know, their girlfriend's parents or, you know, their their you know, their spouses, relatives and stuff like that. There's a there's a fear there that was a re- relatable. And then you just add a layer on and like, oh, and then they're crazy, like, you know, horrible people. And, you know, and then with like Black Panther, you, you know, you, you tapped into this idea of like a world where, you know, it wasn't colonized, you know, this, this nation that was allowed to just progress on its own merits, you know, completely isolated and stuff like that. And it was just this wonderful narrative that came from a space that, you know, didn't have to like lean into any of the standards of storytelling that were already set, you know, because especially in what was really truly interesting about Black Panthers that like to the point that you made earlier where you had, you would have publishers or editors or just we'll call them all gatekeepers saying like, this story won't work with this black character in the lead. But something like Black Panther, it's just like, it takes place in Africa, dude. Everybody's gonna be black, <laughs> you know? And, you know, you didn't have the usual pushback like, oh, well, what about in, in China and Hong Kong? They're not going to accept this because you new know, things like that happened with Star Wars, where they took the character of Finn on all of the marketing stuff. And they, they, they made him smaller and not as apparent because there was this lie that had been, you know, like perpetuated that like, oh, uh, black characters don't sell or like the audiences in China won't respond to black characters. But Black Panther did amazing that. Like people loved it. It's like... You, you, you're just like internalizing all these myths and lies about things that these films are consistently just proven wrong, you know? So that's how you know that things are systemic because like there's a, there's a false, there's a false like border around these things that you, you guys just need to like, like get past, get comfortable with like breaking that. And like just saying like, no, we're not gonna, we are gonna put this, this person in the lead. We are gonna tell this, per- this, this kind of story and it's gonna be great. Uh, explain like I mean we can you know appear totally stupid, but explain to me why Black Panther is a different type of storytelling. Well, it's a different type of storytelling in the sense that like you know it really is built around a completely black cast, and it's steeped in not only like you know a sort of super idealized Afrofuturistic like narrative, but it also comes from a place of like you know, uh, African-American ambitions, you know, the idea that like, who, who, who would we be untouched by Western civilization? You know, like so much of like our identity is steeped in that, so much of the filter that the world sees us through comes through that. So here's a story that's about, there's nothing Western here. You know, this is, this is just very African, but still in the same space as like Captain America 
or like the Avengers, you know, it's still happening in that same like universe on that same level. And you can accept that story. You know, you can accept the idea of like, you know, a, a, a monarchy <laughs> in, in this day and age that feels like not oppressive, but actually like, you know, very egalitarian. You can, you know, see the society that still has its own internal conflicts and politics, you know, that speak to these ideas of like, you know, people shutting themselves off from the world, you know, is that the right way to go? So it, it was really a different story in that like it told, you know, a, a story about people who are exceptional and like cutting themselves off, you know, and saying like, you can, you don't have to be a protectionist necessarily. There's like a broader world that you could participate in, you know, you don't have to be fearful of it. So there's just a lot of interesting concepts in the story, but I felt like that was something unique that you don't really get too much of in a lot of, definitely not superhero movies, you know? Like usually it's like, it would be something like Thor where it's just like, oh, we're these regal godlike people who we don't, we don't deal with their things. Like these characters are really struggling. You know, they're just like, do we participate in the world or do we not, you know? Our whole, our whole ideal of life has been staying away from these people, they're crazy. You know, World War II, Vietnam, we're not dealing with any of this crazy shit. I'm just going to stay here in our country. Good luck. You know, so that was really interesting and unique. It's a unique, like, ball to play with. I'm very interested to see how that works out in the second uh, movie because it's like, yeah, you're going from an isolated nation that has so much to offer the world. Like, how's that going to work out? Yeah, I was... Uh... I was, when I was watching the Black Panther, which really loved it, it's, amazing. I, it's shocking to me how comic book movies were bad, 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 bad. And they, they keep shutting out so good one after the other and so different from each other. Mm -hmm. I was really afraid. And I have no way to, to, to know this because I don't come from Africa. Uh, that what they showed me, was a Western way of looking at Africa. Um, and I know yeah. to judge whether that was it or that wasn't it. Or the tribalism where they got, or, you know, on the one hand, you had the tribes and you had the way they fought for the thing. But on the other hand, how true, how African is that? And how like Africa maybe is it? Yeah, I mean, like as a, as a writer myself, I, I can only imagine how tough that research yeah. was, but I feel like there was enough pressure on the entire like team working on that and enough drive for them to get it right that, you know, they weren't going to, you know, like take their Western American, African-American perspective and say like, oh, this is how Africa is. I mean, certainly there's probably things they didn't get right, maybe some accents or what have you, or, but, you know, the intent was not to trivialize any cultures it was to say like we're going to draw from because you know in, in some respect wakanda in that story is an amalgam of a lot of african cultures so they mm -hmm. pull from a lot of things to create this fictional like world where you can be a little loose with certain things so it's like they're not going to get everything right but they're also going to be respectful to like you know dialects and like you know textiles and like you know traditions and stuff like that but then make them their own because you know at, at the end of the day it's not you know Angola, it's not the Congo. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a made-up place. But you're pulling yeah. from those cultures, which I think they were 
even trying to infer that like Wakanda influenced some of those cultures. So it was like, you know, it was able to like push and pull and tell something that's just like, yeah, it's it's fictional Africa, but <laughs> you know, it's steeped in some in some in some reality. And yeah. I think that was a good mix because then that way you could you could just sit back and enjoy it and not feel like it's like, oh, they didn't get this right. It's like, well, they're not actually, you know, from Kenya. <laughs> It's like, but that's based on some dress, yes. Okay, and I, I um, was there? I, I just have like four. I'm taking a lot of your time, and no worries. I'm enjoying this, and uh, I, I have a few more questions I really want to get to. And one is like, how was this received by black people? Like we talked about the racists. Let's talk about the other side. I. It was, it was nothing but love and it has been the entire time and that's been a thing that felt really good and I, I think I had said earlier the thing that really made my made my day and continues to is when like younger black people who are getting into comic books or seeing these stories have just told me that it's just like you know I love Spider-Man or like I love you know Batman but this is the first time I saw me this is the first time like I had the superpowers and I had the abilities and like, and it wasn't like, you know, a black character was just kind of put on a team or in the background. It's like, this was me at the forefront with other people who look like my sister, my brother, my cousin were, you know, with me too. It's like, it just felt really like you were speaking to the culture and you know, that's a, that's a difficult thing to do. It's something I'll still work on <laughs> as a writer, but, you know, feeling, feeling that kind of like love was, was really welcomed, you know, because it wasn't something where I, I was putting it out there with any intent other than to really just represent those, those voices, you know, my own mm-hmm. as a writer, but also those are the people who I, you know, call family. You know, whether it's by blood or just by shared experience, it's it was something that, you know, I, I felt was passed on to me and I was obligated to pass it on as well. Because, again, if I hadn't had that meeting with Dwayne McDuffie, I'd, it changed my life. I don't think I would have gotten in the comics. I wouldn't have known how to do it. I was only 16. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't know any better. That's full circle. And did you, at the end, is there a TV deal, a movie deal, or can you not? Oh uh, yeah, I mean we're we uh, Black is with Warner Brothers right now, so mm-hmm. I've been reading scripts. Um, I can't talk about a lot of that stuff, sure. but it's been an amazing process to like see other people take the story and and work through their interpretations of it because I'm a very big proponent of like you know respect the medium. You know, my one of my favorite films is like uh, Kubrick's The Shining, because it's like I like the book, but the film is a very different thing, and yeah. I loved how he distilled down, you know, the key parts to still create a different sense of horror that's completely true to the book. Which is why I've never understood why Stephen King doesn't like the film because I'm like, it it truly honors what you were doing, but it had to do it in a way of a film, you know. So like, I've said to every, I've said to the studios multiple times as many times as possible is like do not just make my comic verbatim it'll be a horrible film it'll be a horrible film <laughs> it's, just no, no, it's true it's a mistake by many 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 people yeah yeah it's like you know stay true to the concept you know 
keep the characters that that mean something to you it's like you can't fit everybody in there if you can great excellent work but you know really just try to make a film like make a film because that's you know what people are coming to sit down and expect you know it's like I don't I don't know how long my comic reads but you know I feel like it's like a five-hour film like you can't do that if not people sit down you're gonna have to cut certain things and like just you know, like figure it out so it's like I, I've, I've I've seen a version of it that I am completely in love with and would never have expected and actually told him it's like I'm gonna steal some of this stuff just so you know <laughs> for for my work it's like it's like you base it on my books. I feel like I can steal your stuff too, right? Like so, it, it's it's been really good and positive. And first of all, I would have been shocked if no one had made at least any offers to you because that really isn't. Yeah, I mean that was the that was the thing to deal with when we first launched the Kickstarter. Just there were so many offers. Like I didn't oh. really understand any of that when it first happened. I was just like, oh well, like <laughs> yes, no, no. Um, so it, it became a it became a quick learning experience on how to say no to things. And and what like what is your path? I know now you're writing white, mm -hmm. which is basically the continuation of like what yeah. happened a few years later. I uh, did get a few pages in, so I saw there was a president, no spoilers, and the son of a president, which now I get. Um, yeah, exactly. And uh, um, and I want to. How do you see? Like, I always ask about the future. What do you see looking forward for yourself? Um, I mean, I'd love to keep writing comics. You know, I I do it. You know, in my spare time. <laughs> you know, and it's just something I love and that I'm passionate about. And exploring some, you know, other stories after. Um, I finished the trilogy of Black, so there's a third book, and that'll be the third part. Um, you know, I did some work with humanoids. I created a whole universe with them. That was really fun. So I'm just going to keep writing and telling stories. Like, there's other ones I want to do. I want to do children's books. You know, I did uh, America's Sweetheart, which is in the Black universe, but that's a YA, you know, mm. novel for, like, young readers. So it really is, you know, something that I just, I, I do because I love it, you know? And I love helping out and I, and I love working with other people who love it. Like that's the joy that I get is like working with my team. Cause like, I just write, I wouldn't be able to make any of this without, you know, Jamal, Kari, Sarah, Tim. <laughs> like it, it's really a team effort, but that's the part that I love because they enjoy it as well. So the fact that we can work on it all together is like something that really brings me happiness. And I hope to just keep doing it until, until I don't. Nice, good. Uh, anything you want people to know? Um, we didn't cover. No, I don't think so. I, I feel like that's, a, that's such an open-ended question. I just, like, there's a lot of things I'd like people to know. <laughs> um, I think just, uh, yeah, like go out and, and, and read white, you know, check it out. It's the, it's the sequel to black. Um, and it's all about like how the United States essentially reacts to finding out only black people have superpowers. So uh, if you if you can imagine what that would be like, <laughs> hopefully uh, I'll, I'll still have some surprises for you. Thank you so much to Kwanzaa Sajefo. I've listened to this episode a couple of times and uh, and I love it. For more about Kwanzaa, go to his website, www.kwanzaa.com. 
I'll spell it for you. K-W-A-N-Z-A, Kwanza. O-S-A-J-Y-E-F-O dot com. Twitter is at Kwanza. That's K-W-A-N-Z-E-R. Instagram is also at Kwanza. Next time on Gigdomine Powers, because there's always a next time. We go to the creator of one of the greatest comic books based on African tribal mythologies. So, come back for that. It is uh, fantastic. Gigdomine Powers releases three episodes a week on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. How did you like this episode? Write to me, guy.hasson at geekdominpowers.com. I should also say, oh, Hasson is H-A-S-S-O-N, guy.hasson at geekdominpowers.com. I should also say I've been starting to get emails from people who want to be on the show, and these are great people that I would not have found any, any by myself. So if you are especially <laughs> unique, have a great story, uh, and uh, do something in the geek first. Uh, you know, email me. Let me know. Ask to be a guest. I'm really happy to, uh, to accept, uh, special people. The website is geekdominpowers.com on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We are at geekdominpowers. And my name is Guy Hassan. You can also check out, uh, my other daily podcast because doing three huge podcasts a week is not enough. My other daily podcast is called The Squash Buckler Diaries. It is an experiment in epic fantasy. The Squash Buckler Diaries podcast. I will see you next time. And for now, have an empowered day.